Good afternoon. <laughs> Rough afternoon. <laughs> it is good to see you tonight. We're glad you're here. Very excited and thankful. God is so good. Certainly worthy of our praise and adoration. If you're there in Philippians 3, stay right there. That's what we're going to talk about tonight, those verses that we had read, and maybe a few more as we proceed tonight. As you read the Apostle Paul's writing, the church is never very far from his pen. He writes about the Lord's church constantly, and he provides a lot of insight about the church. It is unfortunate that the church is misunderstood by some who are even members of the Lord's church, and you would think that wouldn't be the case, but sadly it is. The church is one of three divine institutions, and all we mean by that is God made these things. They were not in existence, and then God made them, and now they are, and they belong to Him. He not only made them, He governs them, He teaches about them, He dictates how we live within them. The first one that's revealed to us in Scripture is the home, Genesis chapter 2. That is God's creation. God did that. The family, the home, marriage, God is the originator of that. We go a little further in Scripture and we run into the second one, and that would be Genesis 9, and that's government. After they come off the arks, things will be different than they were prior to the ark. Among them will be that men will execute justice on men. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. You can see the difference just by starting in Genesis 3 and reading forward. You'll notice that when Adam and Eve sin, God comes to them. When Cain offers the wrong thing, God comes to him. In the days of Noah, God says, my spirit will not always strive. God comes to Noah. But after the flood, God says, no, men will execute judgment on men. It will be government, uh, not any particular brand per se, but law and order. Government will be ordained of God, and that's true throughout the Bible. The third one revealed to us in Scripture is the church. What we learn, though, is that the church was actually in the mind of God in eternity, Ephesians 3, 9 through 11. You hear some people talk about the Lord's church today. You can tell that they misunderstand it because they talk about it in terms the Bible doesn't speak about it. You hear sometimes Christians say, maybe this is a Freudian slip. Maybe they don't quite mean it this way. They say things like, you know, in other denominations, the implication being we're one and in others, well, the church is not a denomination. You hear people talk about the Protestant Reformation, well, and then religion coming out of that, or you hear some even talk about the Restoration, like the church is a Stone Campbell movement. If you're going to restore something, you need something to restore, and so there is a church that they're seeking to restore. The church doesn't begin in the Restoration movement. You hear people talk about our fellowship as if there are other fellowships acceptable to God or maybe our traditions as they try to, again, make some sort of distinction between the Lord's church and denominationism. When you read the Bible, Scripture talks about a church in a way that makes it unlike any other religious body in existence. There's nothing like the church. In fact, in Scripture, the church is a nation. You ever heard a religious group refer to themselves as a nation of people? The church is referred that way. It's a nation. It's a holy nation. It's not simply a, a holy nation. It's a living temple. It's comprised of living stones. It's a spiritual house, not a building, but the people themselves. Peter says it's a chosen race of people. 
a royal priesthood, 1 Peter 2, 5 and 9. The church is also the fulfillment of prophecy. No other group can claim that. The church is. Prophecies like Isaiah 2 and Daniel 2 and Joel 2 and Micah 4, 2 all have their fulfillment in Acts 2, with reference to the Lord's church. There is yet another way the church is what no other group can claim, and that's what we'll talk about tonight here in Philippians. Paul uses this expression in Galatians chapter 6 and verse number 16. He says, as many as walk according to this rule, this canon, this rod, this material, as many walk according to that, he says, peace on them and upon the Israel of God. The church is the Israel of God. We talked about the Old Testament this morning and why it's important. This is one more reason. The Jews physically were God's chosen special people for 1,500 years. There was no other nation like this nation. They knew it, and in fact, they made sure everybody else knows it. We are God's people. There are no other people like us. Jesus actually would agree because that is what God did, and they were God's chosen. In John chapter 4, in the conversation that Jesus has with the woman he met there at the well, that woman from Samaria, they get into a discussion of religion. And she says, our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus says, you're right. He says, you worship, you know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. If you wanted salvation in the Old Testament, go to Israel. There is no other nation. In fact, every other nation can be described in Ephesians 2, 11 through 13, that you were ultimately without God and without hope in the world. The Jews, however, missed this very important point, that the church was coming, that God was going to have another people. In fact, they missed it, and they helped to fulfill it. They were a means to an end. They were never the end. You can even hear it in the apostles in Acts chapter 10. This is well after Acts 2. We are not talking about, quote, a member of the church. We're talking about an apostle. We're talking about an apostle who preached Acts chapter 2. An apostle who stood up and said, we can't help but speak the things which we have seen and heard. An apostle who testified to the truth of Jesus, and we are witnesses of these things. An apostle who had a vision from God three times to convince him to take the gospel to people who were not Jews. And when that apostle arrived at that man's house, he met him with these words, you know that it is unlawful for a man that is a Jew to come into the house of a man of another nation. The gospel has come by the time the Apostle Paul writes. The gospel is now going throughout all the world. In fact, Paul is one of the chief proponents in propelling it and sharing it. And the Jews, well, they not only dislike it, they are trying to stop it. They are continually telling people we belong to God. We are God's chosen. You are not. And in fact, if you want to be 
God's chosen, you have to come through us. The Apostle Paul now, a Jew who is a Christian, is now combating that thought. And while some of the Jews will never obey the gospel, others have. Before we go to Philippians 3, look over in Acts chapter 15. This is what's taking place in the first century world. The Jews are attacking the Lord's church. They're saying that they are a sect. Paul says that's what they say, but we're not a sect. In Acts chapter 15, they are not contented to simply stand without. Some of them have obeyed the gospel and are now within. Verse number 5 of Acts chapter 15, the Bible says, but some of the sect of the Pharisees, who believed they've obeyed the gospel? Who has Pharisees? Jews who were Pharisees have obeyed the gospel. They believed. They go up and they stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law. The apostles and elders came together to look into this matter. The Jews have been God's chosen for 1,500 years. Does that continue? Some of the Jews have become Christians, and now they're on the inside of the Lord's body telling the Christians, verse number one of this chapter, unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved. Well, which is it? Who are God's people? That's Paul's point, and that leads us to the church. Notice Philippians chapter 3 and the things that Paul says. He'll make three points here in chapter 3, maybe four, but that's what he takes up. That we are God's people, that's one of the things he says. Finally, brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you. is no trouble to me, but it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. He's talking about those of the Jews who are inside of the body of Christ trying to take them back to Moses. He says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. Then he says, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. When you and I think about the church, it is important that you and I think about the fact that the church is God's Israel. The church are God's people. You hear Paul talk about his past and his presence and the difference between those things. You'll notice in verse number four, he says, although I myself have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I more. He was circumcised. Paul talks about circumcision. He's going to talk about the law. He was a Pharisee in the past. Now he's a Christian. He once worshiped according to the law of Moses. Now he worships in spirit and truth. He persecuted the church. Now he rejoices in Christ. He once counted his righteousness by the law. Now he puts no confidence in the flesh. There has come a change, and the Jews just missed it. When you and I think about the Lord's church, Christians are God's people. That is the perspective. There isn't another nation. There isn't another group. It's not one of many. It's singular in its nature. And of all the people who need to understand that, God's people do. We're not adding people to our church. We're not comparing ours to theirs. It's not ours. The church belongs to Jesus. It's heavenly in nature. Paul says point number one there in verse number three, we 
are the circumcision. Now, you'd have to go back to the Old Testament to appreciate circumcision. It was a sign of the covenant. Originally, the promises given to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3, a land, a nation, and, and a seed. It's instituted in Genesis 17, where God goes into covenant with Abraham and gives him the sign of that covenant, circumcision. It demonstrated God's power and faithfulness. God will bring his word to pass, Genesis 17, 1 to 8. This sign of the covenant made it certain that if you were that, then you belonged to God. It demonstrated that. In fact, the uncircumcised were cut off, Genesis 17, 14. Circumcision provided then certainty. God would keep his promises, verse 21 of chapter 17. In fact, if you want a good read about God and his abilities, his character, his nature, his love for his people, just start reading Genesis 17 and listen to God talk about the future as if it's already happened. Listen to God say to Abraham, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. And he is certain that it, listen to him tell Abraham, he's going to be, kings will come from him. Abraham doesn't even have a child yet. Listen to him ultimately say, in Isaac shall your seed be called. And he says in that chapter, at this set time in the next year, God will keep his word. Circumcision identified Israel as God's people. In fact, that's one of the names they're just called. They're sometimes referred to as the circumcision. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. As the Apostle Paul talked about them and to make the distinction between the Gentiles who were not God's people and the Jews who were God's people, he would use circumcision. Now, he would use a lot of things, sometimes the law and other things. But on this occasion, notice Ephesians 2 and verse number 11. Therefore, remember, he's talking to Jews or Gentiles rather, and he's now talking to Christians. One of the things that's also noteworthy when you read the Bible is to pay attention to the shift from we and ye and you and your. Those things are significant. In fact, if you're there in Ephesians, go back to chapter 1 and just notice these first 11 to 12 verses where Paul says in verse number 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. Who's the us? Typically, you see the word us, you just think us. Well, he's talking to Christians. He's talking about all Christians. Well, if you just keep reading, Paul will say, he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing to heavenly places in Christ. That's right. There's another us there in chapter 4, verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Verse number 5, he predestinated us unto the adoption of sons, to the praise of his glory, verse number 6, in whom we have redemption, forgiveness of sins, which he lavished on us, verse number 8, which, uh, verse number 9, he made known to us the mystery, verse number 10, with administration suitable to the fullness of times. You get down to verse number 11 and verse 12, and he keeps saying this over and over again. But look at verse 13. In whom you. Us, 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 and in whom you. It's not the same group of people. Now, he's writing to Christians. So if you take the, all of the us's to be Christians, well, who's the you? Oh, he means Jews, and then he means Gentiles. He did this to us, to us, to us, to us, to us, and you also after listening. You'll see it again in chapter 2. Verse number 1 begins, and you, 
brethren, you Gentile Christians, you were dead in your trespasses and sin, which you formerly walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now working the children of disobedience. But look at verse 3. Among whom we, we who? Jews. We also formerly lived in the lust of our flesh and in the indulgence of the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children. We were just like you in the end. We all were, which is how all are under sin. Romans 1, the Gentiles. Romans 2, the Jews. Romans 3, all of us. That's his point. The Apostle Paul is a Christian who is a Jew and also an apostle. And as he pens these words, depending on audience, he moves and shifts through all of them. So when he says these things down in verse number 11, he says, therefore, remember chapter 2 of Ephesians, that you were formerly Gentiles. That's what you were. In the flesh who are called uncircumcision. What made you different? You weren't circumcised. Well, who called you the uncircumcision? He says, at that time, you were called the uncircumcision, which born in the flesh by hands, that you, were by, by, uh, that you were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the cousin of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's where you were. And now he says in Philippians 3, we are the circumcision. That's not a reference to the Jews. They had already been the circumcision. No, his point is, brethren, you are now God's people. The circumcision of which we speak is no longer to the Jews physically. It's to those who have had sin removed from their heart in the operation of God by the gospel. Those are God's people. That is the true circumcision. Circumcision in the Old Testament made them God's people. You read Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, and you hear God say, You are my people above all nations. You see what I did? I brought you to myself on eagle's wings. I brought you. You belong to me, and you will be a kingdom of priests above all nations. There is no nation in the Old Testament like Israel. There is nothing like this group of people. And in the New Testament, that's the church. We are the circumcision. Because of Jesus, God's people is no longer physical Israel. It's now those who have obeyed the gospel. Listen to Paul talk about it in Romans. Notice the end of Romans chapter 2. As he tries to explain this to both Jew and Gentile, number one, to help the Jews understand the need to obey the gospel, number two, to confirm and, and, and edify the Gentiles that they have done the right thing. He says in Romans 2 and verse 28, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and His praise is not from men, but from God. Those who have obeyed the gospel are God's Jews. Those who have obeyed the gospel are those who are circumcised. You can see it in Paul's writing in Colossians 2, verses 9 to 15, Galatians 3, 26 to 29. How powerful a statement to both Jews and Christians. One 
should, they should no longer understand that the Jews had, were God's people. What a powerful statement to the Gentile brethren. You are God's circumcision. Peter talks about it in 1 Peter 2, verse 5, and verse 9, and verse number 10. You were once not a people, and now you are the people of God. Point number one, we are the circumcision. That's the church. Point number two, Paul says we worship God acceptably. Because of the circumcision, the Jews was blessed in every way. In fact, Paul kind of says it that way. You had every advantage. That's the nature of that covenant. That's the nature of being God's people. That's the nation of that singular relationship. They had every advantage over every other nation. In fact, they communed with God. They fellowshiped with God. They had the tabernacle and then the temple, and God met them there. They had the covenant of God, Deuteronomy 5, verses 1 through 5. You should read that section of Scripture and hear Moses talk to that nation and say, the Lord our God made a covenant with us, even us, those of us who are all alive here this day. The Lord made not this covenant with our fathers, but with us. They had God's covenant. They were given the Word of God. Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 6, and Romans chapter 3, when they asked what advantage then had the Jew, Paul said, chiefly every way, but unto them were committed the oracles of God. Can you imagine the singular nature of the importance of being able to go talk to Moses, who just five minutes ago was talking to God, who brought down a law written with the finger of God? That's your nation. Those are your people. They could eat the Passover, Exodus 12. They were given the priests and the sacrifice and the Levites. They had every advantage. They were, after all, God's people. As a result of that, they got to worship God. But now Paul says that worship is no longer acceptable to God. No, he says, listen, if you're looking around the world and you want to find the people who are worshiping God, he says, that's us. Brethren, that's the church. That's exactly what he says. Not only are we the circumcision, yes, we're God's people. But secondly, we worship God in spirit. We do that. Christians are the temple of God. 1 Peter 2, verse number 5. Living stones, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. We have fellowship. Nobody else does. But if you walk in the light as he is in the light, you have fellowship. What happens if you don't? If you walk in darkness, then God has no fellowship. 1 John 1, 5 through 7. It's amazing when people talk about the church. They misunderstand. There is a group of people that fellowship God, and nobody else does. There's a group of people that are God's, and nobody else is. And sometimes when you hear things like that, people just misunderstand. They think it's about us. It's not about us. It's about God. And what belongs to him? Christians are the temple. Christians have fellowship. Christians have the covenant, Matthew 26, 26 to 28. A new covenant I give unto you, Jesus said. Christians eat the Passover, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 8. Christ is our Passover. What you and I are supposed to do when you read these words in the New Testament is go back to the Old Testament and understand. When we talk about the Passover, who had it? When we put the blood out, and when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. You can understand pretty clearly that's not Egypt. That's Israel. 
What is it in the New Testament? Well, if Christ is our Passover, well, that means when God sees the blood that covers us in baptism, then he passes over. Well, how can one have that who's not baptized? How can you go around talking about the church in denominational terms? How can you possibly compare that to anything else not that? Oh, we are the circumcision. We are the Passover. We worship God in spirit. We do that. That's Paul's point. In the first century world, with these Jews beating down every congregation they can get their hands on, Paul is saying to the brethren, wait a minute, they have it wrong. We are God's chosen. We worship God acceptably. That's his point. We worship God in the Spirit. There are at least four uses of the, of the word Spirit in the New Testament. One of them is the Holy Spirit, of course. A second is the human spirit. A third is doing something in a spiritual manner. And the fourth is the new covenant itself. You can see it. John 16, 14, 16, and 17 refers to the Holy Spirit as the comforter. When he, not it, when he comes, he will guide you into all truth. It's the Holy Spirit, possessor of the divine nature. And then there is the human spirit. Seen in John 4, 24, God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth, with their spirit. You can see Jeremiah or Joshua's words in Joshua 24, he takes that same concept and uses the word sincerity and truth. That's the idea. Your spirit sincerely. And then there is something that's spiritual. You do something in a manner in harmony with the Spirit. It's spiritual in nature as opposed to carnal or fleshly. You can see that in 1 Corinthians 3 where Paul says, Brethren, I would have written unto you. I'd like to write unto you, but I can't. I'd like to write to you about spiritual things, but I can't because you're carnal. As a result of that, you can't understand these spiritual truths because your heart's not right. You can do these things in a spiritual manner. And then there's the new covenant. John 6, 63, Jesus said, it is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. Then he says, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. You can see that in 2 Corinthians 3, where Paul talks about one glory and another glory and how that which was written and given to Moses had glory, but there's something that excels it in glory the new covenant. I think that's what Paul is talking about here. We're the ones who worship God in spirit. We're the ones who worship God acceptably according to the revelation, according to the truth, according to the new covenant. In fact, notice what he says in verse number four. Although I myself might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to become the flesh, I more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. But now Christ has come. And he's brought a new covenant. Jeremiah said he would. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Hebrews 8, 8 to 13. Acceptable worship is no longer under the old law. Again, if you were to read 2 Corinthians 3 and into chapter 4, you can hear Paul explaining that in detail. The Jews had tried to continue to bind Moses' law on God's people. Acts 15, 1, if you're not circumcised, you cannot be saved. That's their aim. We're God's people. That's their claim. You stop it. 
Stop preaching this Jesus. Stop leaving the law. Stop telling people they don't have to follow Moses. Stop telling people the sacrifices are still not in. That's their complaint. That's their effort. And Paul keeps saying, listen, that was, but it's not now. In fact, as you read books like Colossians and Philippians and Hebrews and 2 Corinthians and Galatians, you will hear Paul talking about these matters over and over and over again. In fact, look at Galatians 3. He's talked about it in Galatians 1, 1, 6 through 9. He's talked about it in Galatians 2 from about 11 to the end of the chapter. He gets into chapter 3. He keeps talking about it. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's this covenant. It's this news. It's this Savior. In fact, the Galatians had obeyed it, and they were now going backward. Paul says these words in Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 1. It would apply to anybody leaving Christ. Oh, foolish Galatians! Who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was plainly or publicly set forth as crucified? This only would I learn of you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? Or indeed, if it was in vain, so then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, does he do it by the law or by the hearing of faith? The hearing of faith, the new covenant, the law, the old covenant. Under which of these did you get these miraculous gifts? He clearly got them under the new covenant. And so you should remain with Jesus. We are the circumcision. We worship God in spirit and truth. John 4, 23 and 24 is what Jesus said. Once they worshiped in Jerusalem exclusively. Now, all over the world, anywhere, any place, God can and will receive acceptable worship done according to his word under Jesus Christ by faith and according to his teaching. We are that, Paul says. And then thirdly, Paul says, we're the ones who rejoice. We rejoice in Christ. Under the law of Moses, the Jews had every advantage, and as a result of that, they had reason to rejoice. Their heritage was second to none. In fact, they would tell Jesus in John 8 and verse 34 and verse 39, we have Abraham to our father. When you're doing your, um, your ancestry can you imagine if in your ancestry you could tell and boast people, listen, my ancestry goes back to Abraham. Let me tell you about my forefathers. Yeah, you'll see Moses back there in my family tree. Moses, Miriam, Aaron, those are my people. All the way back, they would have just told you over and over again. In fact, they told Jesus, listen, we're not listening to you. We have Moses. We have Abraham to our father. They had every advantage and therefore they had cause for rejoicing. Nobody else walked through the Exodus. Nobody else passed through the Red Sea. Nobody else was given manna from heaven, a law written by God. They had everything. As a result, they had cause to rejoice. The kings belonged to them. The prophets, the priests, the promised land, theirs. Scripture, theirs. Romans 3, 1 and 2. Paul says to Timothy, from a child, you've known the Holy Scriptures. The Old Testament, that's what he's referencing. You have known that from a child. Why? Because God gave it to his people. There was nothing like the people of God in the Old Testament. As a result, they had every reason to rejoice. What about now? They tried to keep that. They kept telling the Christians, you actually have no reason to rejoice. You are not good enough. 
You are from idolatry and wickedness and sinfulness. You are not God's people. You don't worship acceptably. And if you don't come through us, you cannot be saved. And you hear Paul countering every point. We, Christians, God's people, we are the circumcision. We worship God acceptably. And if there's anyone on planet earth that has cause to rejoice, it's New Testament Christians. Jesus is our Savior, not Moses. No one was more a Jew than the Apostle Paul. He enumerates that, four, five, six, seven. There was nobody like him. He was it. And if there was cause for rejoicing under the law of Moses, if there's a way to be justified, Paul would have found it. But it's not Moses, it's Jesus. Jesus is God's prophet, priest, and king. Jesus is the Passover, the circumcision, the sacrifice for sin, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Therefore, those who are in Him should rejoice. In fact, isn't that what the book keeps saying? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Not rejoice for the sake of rejoicing. Rejoice in the Lord. If a person is in the Lord, that person has reason to rejoice because they're in the Lord. Go back again and read chapter 1 of Philippians. Read chapter 2 and listen to how much Paul talks about Jesus. Read the book of Ephesians. Listen to how much Paul talks about Jesus and what he does to bring the church into existence along with the Father and the Spirit. Paul says we have reason to rejoice. In fact, he ends that verse by saying, and put no confidence in the flesh. This idea of flesh and spirit go backwards and forward as Paul explains and tries to get them to understand that, that there was the old law and now there's the new. Second Corinthians 3 says a veil remains over their heart when they read Moses and commit themselves to that. If, if you could find justification under the old covenant, and that is not to say these people ultimately wasn't saved. Sometimes we talk about the old covenant, we almost seem like we give it a bad light. It was perfect for what God intended it to be. Ultimately, Paul says it was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. We say that they found justification in view of Jesus, and they did. Because the blood of Jesus will also cover them. And as a result of that, those who were faithful under the law were saved in prospect of Jesus coming. What the Jews are saying, however, is you can be saved without Jesus. And Paul says there's no way that can happen. And if you try to do that, as the Jews are trying to reject Jesus and have the Father, Paul says that cannot happen. It became, and it seems to be one of Paul's great, great concerns and cares and seems to trouble his mind a lot. Notice what he says in two chapters of Romans. Romans chapter 9 first. Notice what he says there about them, and then he's going to say more in Romans chapter 9, he says, I'm telling you the truth in Christ Jesus. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. He says that I have great sorrow, unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren. Now, when you read brethren... The Apostle Paul is not talking about Christians. Oh, I have no doubt he felt the same way about Christians. 
which is why he's spreading the gospel all over the world, 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 22, and why he's willing to become all things to all men that he might by all means save some. But when he used the word brethren here, he's not talking about Christians. This grief that he's having, this unceasing desire he's having is for his brethren. Which ones, Paul, he explains. I could wish that I myself were cursed. I could wish that I could go to hell for them. Who? For my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law, the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is Christ according to the flesh, who is overall God blessed. He's talking about Old Testament Jews, those Jews in his day that were the heritage and seed of Abraham, those who came through Moses, those people. He's talking about the very people who are in the practice and act of rejecting Jesus. He says, my heart is grieving for them. He continues in chapter 10, and he says these words. Brethren, now Christians, how do you know? Just keep reading. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them. I think the King James will say for Israel. Brethren, Christians, my heart's desire is for them. What do you want for them, Paul? Their salvation. Why can't they be saved? I bear them record that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. What Paul is saying is the Jews had every advantage and the law and the prophets and all of the things that brought them should have brought them to Jesus. Jesus has come and they have rejected him. The Gentiles, having heard the good news, have left idolatry and is flooding their way to God. The Jews seeing that now react and tell them, you can't be here. We still belong to God. And the apostle Paul stands, being a Jew, now being a Christian, taking the scriptures and saying, listen, there is a people that belong to God, and you're not it. We, brethren, the church of our Lord, we are the circumcision. We worship God in spirit, and we have reason to rejoice in Christ. When you think about the church, I hope that's your perspective. When you go throughout your day, I hope you appreciate there's nothing in human history like this. You are part of that, and may you rejoice in our Lord and put no confidence in the flesh. Only the church that belongs to Jesus Christ can say the things that Paul just said, and there's no other group of people that can be so described. If you're not a part of that body, friends, We may not always explain in great detail what we mean. We may not always use our words in complete and full sentences. Maybe we talk in sound bites. Maybe we make it sound different than what it is. But we are not suggesting in any way, shape, or form that you join our church. We're not suggesting in any form that this church is like every other church and you can just take your pick of these people versus any other people. That's not what we're saying at all. That's not what the scriptures teach. The whole world gave itself to sin after coming off the ark. And God found a man named Abram, made him some promises, 
And from that man there came a nation, and that nation belonged to God. From that nation came the Christ, and Christ has brought a new covenant and a new people. And friends, in order to be saved, you need to be part of the Lord's nation and become a member of the Lord's body. You do that by obedience to the gospel, believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, John 8 and verse 24. And with that belief, that's what the Apostle Paul was preaching. That's what we have preached in Acts chapter 2. And that's what they took all over the world. The good news that Jesus has come, died for our sins, and rose again the third day. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. That's the gospel. And it's for everybody. Would you believe it tonight? Change your heart and your mind and repent. Confess the name of Jesus and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, buried with him in baptism so that you can have your sins washed away and walk in newness of life. And when you're teaching your children about the church, would you teach them these things so that they will have an understanding that the church is not like any other institution on earth? We can help you in any way. We invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.